0: Would you please turn with me in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 4. We want to begin this morning by looking at the first 15 verses. And as a series we've called Starting Over, one of the things that we find that when you start over it seems to invite opposition because I think the enemy of our souls wants to keep us down and doesn't want us to start over when we have gone through difficult seasons in our life. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading these first 15 verses? the text reads as follows. It says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria. And he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices, in other words, in thanksgiving for success? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, his associate, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even if a fox climbed on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Nehemiah breaks into prayer in verse 4. He says, Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot build the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. And then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you are, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows, And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we really reflect on this passage this morning, that your Holy Spirit would help us to know how to navigate the times of opposition and discouragement that every one of us experiences on a regular basis. We pray, Lord, that we might really respond by faith, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to begin by asking you a credibly obvious question. Have you ever been discouraged? Uh, So discouraged that you maybe wanted to quit or maybe even worse, maybe you did quit. You just stopped. If you answer yes to that, not only are you being honest, but you often have to understand you are certainly not alone. Discouragement is something that happens to every one of us with quite a bit of regularity. I mean, we face problems that really sap all of our confidence. They take away our enthusiasm. And even if the problem is real or sometimes even imagined, in other words, we make a, a mountain out of a mohill. We overreact for various reasons. We end up finding ourselves feeling like whatever we need to do, we don't have enough. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough energy. We don't have enough money. We just don't have enough friends or support or whatever the thing is we think is lacking. And it can get so dark that we end up giving up. In fact, giving up comes not just an option. Sometimes we can conclude it's the only reasonable choice that's left to us. And please do not try to say to yourself and more importantly to me that you've never been there. I mean, you have been there. I don't care how optimistic and positive and you know up with people you happen to be. You've been there. You've been at that place where you just said, I just can't do this anymore. It's in that regard that I think a passage is important for us to focus on real quickly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul said something that he repeated twice, once here and then again in Romans. He said, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That, in other words, in life, he says, Satan is always looking for that point of entrance, that entree where he can begin to step into your life and begin to work his evil deeds in your life. And I'm convinced that one of his favorite tools that he loves to use, the device that he is probably the handiest with, And is most effective with is this issue of discouragement. I mean, it reminds me of uh, uh, the story of the prospector who had spent years mining a piece of property and having never unearthed more than just an insignificant number of flakes of gold, he eventually just gave up. Years later, another came and began to dig where he had stopped, discovered a major vein of gold just inches deeper and from where the prospector had left off and became a very wealthy man as a consequence. That idea of getting that close and giving up and then missing out is something that should haunt us many times, especially if we are certain that the path we're on is a path that God has put us on, that we're doing what we thought God wanted us to do. Let me tell you how that works many times. I find that God if he wants you to move in a new direction, gives you enough signs, miracles, and wonders to convince you it's the right thing. And then when you've committed yourself, it's like he has disappeared. You know? <laughs> I heard this message, or well, my son shared this with me, about uh, Pastor Joshua Waters, who, or Elijah Waters, who basically, said, made this statement in one of the Sunday, his mid-the-week services. He said, God takes you to a test so that he can test you So that you have a testimony. He takes you to a test so he can take you through a test so he can give you a testimony. But then he added this. When God gives you a test, it's a lot like when you're in school. Have you noticed, he said, when the teacher gives you a test, he or she is silent? (laughs) And that's where it gets really tough. That when you've stepped out in faith, you've trusted that God is leading, and suddenly you find yourself in a situation and... It seems like God has suddenly given silence. What do I do? What's the next step? How do I answer the question? What am I supposed to take care of? Blah, 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 blah. And you feel like you're out there all by yourself. And at those moments, we find ourselves sorely tempted to give up and even retreat. I mean, real life is full of those kinds of experiences, isn't it? I think one of the most common today is the area of marriage. Many marriages end too soon how what's too soon well the bible says till death do you part now granted there were times where my wife has prayed lord if you want to take him it's okay you know but the point is that you understood that we are we're really committed to each other until death do us part and i think that if you don't go into marriage with that kind of commitment you're setting yourself up for not only hardships but even potentially failure and that's what we have all around us today 40% of marriages end in divorce Most of them, on average, is marriages last eight years. And it's ironic because really, if you've been married for any time, you realize it takes the first 25 years just to get past the kids, to build some kind of form of financial stability and, you know, buy a house and pass through your midlife crisis and menopause and all those other things, when you finally after 25 years, you get to a place where you can actually begin enjoying this relationship that you've crafted over the years, and yet many people come to that point and their marriage fall apart. In fact, most marriages fall apart in the first five years. The second most deadly period is after 25. You would think that, all oh, these guys are home, but what happens after 25 years, they've lived such separate, distinct lives and so interrupted by the business of life, a man and woman look at each other and saying, we hardly know each other anymore. And so they give up on the relationship. Or how about ministries? How many people have set out? I've seen it so often, especially people going into the mission field, and they get there and find out it is so much harder than they had ever imagined. They're dealing with stuff that they're psychologically, emotionally, even spiritually unprepared for, and they right away say, this is too hard. We're packing up and going home. Or how many pastors do I know who have given up? That I'm told that every month, 1,500 leave the ministry. 1,500. Having been at a pastor's conference this last week, I I can't tell you how many times I heard people say to me, guys say to me, I'm quitting every day. I mean, just stories of discouragement and things that have gone wrong and things that have happened. And uh, even surprisingly, people that I would think were, were basically immune to have being touched by that kind of stuff share with me just these deep, dark seasons of the soul where they just wanted to just find a way to quit and escape. Thankfully, they haven't. But there's a reason we find the Bible talks about this issue of discouragement so often. In fact, I found some 67 different times just in the Old Testament where it said, in effect, be strong and courageous and don't be discouraged. You know what discouragement is? It's lack or loss of courage, and we find constantly God saying, don't allow the obstacles, the challenges, the problems to keep you from moving forward because that's going to be your inherent innate response. That's, that's what's going to seem intuitively sensible thing to do is to just give it up, and you will find there are people who will come around you and saying, you just need to move on with your life. You're stuck in this difficult situation, and I don't mean to say that sometimes that that isn't accurate. I'm just saying most of the time, is isn't accurate. In fact, I appreciate so much Rick Warren noted one time. He said, discouragement is a disease unique to human beings, and it's universal. Eventually, everyone gets it. It's a disease unique to human beings. How often do we think of discouragement as being a disease that we suffer from? It comes to us mostly because of opposition. I mean, as I was going through the New Testament, I was struck by how repeatedly the references were to opposition. In Acts 6:9, we find the early church is facing, it says, opposition arose to the point where people were killed and they had to flee for their lives. In Philippians, Paul said he faced jealousy and opposition on a daily basis. To the Thessalonians, he said, in spite of strong opposition. To his son Timothy, he writes, correcting those who are in opposition because Timothy was getting discouraged because he was being criticized and coming under such opposition. To the Corinthians, Paul even admitted, he said, we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. In fact, he said earlier in that same book, he said that we were under such great pressure, pressure, he said, that was beyond our ability to deal with, that we despaired even of life itself. He's describing a guy who's so discouraged, he's actually depressed. Now, I know it may be sacrilegious in some of your theology to think that Paul ever went through periods of depression, but he did. And Almost justifiably so. It's not that he got depressed. It's the fact that he didn't get stopped by it. But there's a reason why the writer of Hebrews says to us about Jesus, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because Jesus warned us, John 14, John 15, he said, don't let your heart be troubled neither let yourself be afraid why he says (laughs) here's some exciting message the world hates you (laughs) and if they persecuted me they will persecute you and jesus word is don't let that discourage you peter himself said in the end of his his first letter he said don't be surprised when these kind of things happen, he said, because although as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, if we understand that we are going to have to deal with opposition and it's just part of the journey, then we will be able to deal with it more humbly. But why are we surprised? (laughs) by this. In fact, we shouldn't be surprised that as soon as Nehemiah and the Jews began the process of rebuilding the wall, that opposition arose and it came first from external sources. You know, we have first of all they are we're told that they are ridiculed and despised. Basically the term we would use is they were held in contempt. It's terrible to be disparaged by other people. Have you ever really felt somebody else's contempt? Frankly, I mean, if you're married, you have. I'm serious. You know, when, when a man says something and his wife turns her head and rolls her eyes, that's contempt. Or when a man hears his wife say something and walks away and goes, women, you know, when will they ever leave, learn to, to leave the toilet seat up? You know, <laughs> that's contempt. That's heaping Statements upon someone that is designed to diminish their value as a person rather than to build it up. And that's what these guys did. Psalm they, they, Balat starts off saying, you guys are totally incapable of accomplishing the task. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? I mean, that's interesting. You guys are going gonna to do what? Oh, yeah, right. Like, we're going to take you seriously? you know I, I, I think of one great missionary who when he told his father that he was going to be a missionary his father said to him what are you going to accomplish you're nothing but a muddler and he said to his father then I'll just go and muddle through and he ended up muddling quite well he translated the Bible from English into the Hindi language which is still the Bible they use in India today some good muddling going on there but oftentimes you'll get that saying you Want to do what? Really, I think you should leave that to the trained professionals. Or they'll basically say that it's impossible. He said, Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? What we don't understand is that stone actually crumbles under intense heat. And that's when they talk about burning walls and burning buildings. The, the stone literally would oftentimes explode because of the water heating up inside the stone. But also it would just crumble and literally turn to ash under intense heat. And he's saying, there's nothing there to build with. You don't have the resources. What you're trying to accomplish is an exact and absolute impossibility. Just be smart and give it up. Or basically, thirdly, that you guys are incompetent. He said, was that Tobias said, if even a fox climbed on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Yeah, they don't build their wall, it don't stand, it'll fall apart. Nothing's gonna come up with it. You know, it's kinda of like somebody saying, You go ahead, go to India. What a waste of time and money. Nothing good's gonna happen out of that. What are you going to do? How are you going to change the world? But that didn't work. They kept on building. And when it didn't work, they thought, well, we need to up the ante. So they began to use threats and fear. It says they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. It goes on to say, all of our enemies said before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Have you ever noticed how Satan uses fear in your life? If I commit to this, what will happen? And I think, how many things that God yearns to do never get done at least through you or me, because of our own sense of inadequacy, our own fearfulness, particularly our fear of failure, keeps us from going forward. But Sambalat didn't just simply rely upon external threats. He also used some eternal psychological warfare. It says in the text that he stirred up trouble. And then we're told what kind of trouble he stirred up. You see, we'll discover more and more as we go through the book that he has allies. He has people amongst the Jews who are on his payroll and who are sympathetic to his position because they are benefiting from him being in control and being in charge. And they fear the, con- the city being taken out of his sphere of influence as much as he does. In verse 10 we read, it says, Meanwhile, the people of Judah, he's talking about the people that are part of the team, are saying the strength of the labor is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. I love what Isaiah said. He says, Does God bring to the moment of birth and not deliver? In other words, God says, "You know, When I, when I, when I gestate something by my spirit, one thing you can be sure, there is going to be something birthed out of what I'm doing. But oftentimes, as we've stepped out and God begins this gestational process in our life where something's beginning to be formed inside of our heart, a vision, a dream, a passion, an excitement, a possibility, Satan comes up and says, you're going to be pregnant with that for the rest of your life. You're going to take that to the grave. That's never going to come to birth. And what happens is you look at yourself and say, how in the world am I going to be able to do what I've just committed myself to do? And that's a quitting point for a lot of people, and it's sad because that quitting point is really the critical juncture in which you open the door and allow God to begin to move. I remember after I I, uh, uh, was recovering from my surgery, I remember we were down in California visiting family, and I was just, uh, I got this kind of crazy idea that I was going to see if I could start running again. You know, I mean, I had two weeks since surgery, and I thought, that's probably plenty of time to heal. And it, Well, I, quite honestly, let me tell you what I did. I started walking. Now, the nice thing was because it was flat ground at sea level, <laughs> not like my house. And so I just started walking, and then I started running a little bit, and I started walking, and I started running. And what you find is over time, you begin to build stra- stamina so that now, I mean, I just get out and go, and I don't think twice about it, and it feels really good, and I'm kind of addicted to those endorphins now, but the thing is that... it's that first step, isn't it, when you try to go on a diet or you try to start exercising and you, you're all enthusiastic in the beginning and then you begin to run into the thing or you decide that you're going to go back to school and finish your education or you decide that you're going to start a home group and you're going to do a connect group or you, you fill in whatever the thing is. You have this initial impetus to go and do this and then suddenly you kind of get the wheels in the mud and you feel like, what did I commit to? how is this going to be possible? How are we going to get to the next point? I'm going to look like a fool. Jesus actually warned you. You know, your friends will be saying, you know, Jesus said no man starts to build a house unless he knows how much it's going to cost him. And did you count the cost of what you're going to? do? And you get this helpful information. And so here you are, you know, you've just laid the foundation and threw up a few sticks and suddenly everybody is saying, that's not going to work and you're left with a choice. You can abandon what you've done, or you can kind of dig in and say, you know what? I believe God called me this, and I'm going to move forward. Even in verse 12, it says, then the Jews who lived near them came back and said, wherever you turn, they're going to attack us. So this was a tough part. Not only was he getting these threats from the outside, even the people who were supposed to be part of his team were giving a lot of negative information, tearing down and discouraging their hearts. Not because they were trying to be mean. I think because they were, they were afraid themselves. But Jesus made an important point in Matthew 12, 25. In fact, every time Jesus spoke, isn't it an important point? But He said, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. It was Philip of Macedon, the, the father of Alexander the Great, who coined, first coined this phrase, as far as we can tell, Divide and conquer. And not only does God take groups of people and divide and conquer, but let's take it even a little more internally. There are times when you become divided against your own self. Those times in your mind where you're conflicted because what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go forward or should I just run in retreat? What does God want me to do? And the result is what is often called the paralysis of analysis. You spend so much time gazing at your navel that all you can do is think about is navel lint (laughs) and what you can make from it. But let's take it a little bit deeper. What is really the, the source of discouragement? Well, I think there are three things that often get overlooked. The first one is fatigue. The strength of the laborers is giving out. One of the things you find that when people are discouraged, are fatigued, they get discouraged very easily. In fact, I'll just let you in on a little pastoral trade secret. Every Monday morning, I want to quit. You know, you, you pour everything out emotionally, mentally, and physically, and you are fatigued. And that when you're really, really fatigued, there's only one thing you want to do is not do what you just got done doing. So, one of the things is you, you have to take care of yourself. Don't make important decisions when you're worn out and exhausted and tired, especially whether it's a decision to keep going. But, secondly, frustration. When they said, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. There is always that moment in any project or, or mission or thing that you're doing where you're looking at the, what is in front of you, what needs to be accomplished, and you understand this is so much bigger than me. That's not a bad place to come to. Fatigue is not a bad place because you realize that, your strength, that you don't have enough strength in yourself and you need God's strength. Frustration is not bad because it brings you to the point where you're saying, you don't have the horsepower to pull this off, but God does. And These are a little humbling ways that God makes sure that we don't get too touchy-feely with the glory. But what I find most important is this fear that comes in, especially the fear of failure. For them, they could look back and say, for 80 years we've been trying to figure out how to rebuild these walls, and finally we've started But what if we don't finish it? What if we don't finish it? You know what the fear of failure really is? It's a fear of looking bad in the eyes of others. It's a fear of looking bad in the eyes of others, especially in a success oriented culture that we live in. I mean, keep in mind, San Balat, their enemy, He's motivated by a fear of failure. I mean, he's fighting to hold on to his power over Judea that he knows will be greatly hindered and constricted if they succeed in building a wall and establishing their own independence. He does not want Judea to have a walled city with a governor ruled over it who no longer has to be in fear of him. So he sees a loss of power, and he's highly motivated. He's running in fear. He, in fact, is like a lot of people today in our world, especially in America, who basically feel that winning isn't just the main thing, winning is everything. So that when we try to understand why highly successful athletes will do wrong, cheatful things, will shoot drugs to enhance their performance, or will deflate balls for whatever reasons, and we look at that and say, why did you even need to do that? Seriously. Seriously. Why would you even need to do that? Like the Colts were ever gonna catch you? I mean, why did you do this? And you realize that winning becomes the essence of who they are. The thought of losing is a terror that they run from. We Americans live in a highly competitive, win-at-all-cost, success-based culture that leads us to be obsessed with winning and we are different from the rest most of the world in this regard I mean think about our obsession with world champions Seahawks take the Super Bowl and we are so much more valuable as people they lose it and we get depressed now unless you put a whole bunch of money on the game I don't know why you're depressed but we always have the Olympics, and we're always looking at the paper. Who got the most gold medals? Oh, well, at least we got more medals than anybody else. That proves that we're a little bit better than everybody else. I think the most hilarious thing to me was uh, our women's soccer team who just you know, won the, the World Cup, and God bless them for that. But how many of you ever gave a rip about women's soccer? <laughs> before they won the World Cup. Now I tell, I'm told tickets are selling wildly because everybody wants to get next to a winner. And one of the things, if you win at sports, it makes you an authority, an expert on everything. <laughs> you ever notice that? <laughs> what do you think about the economy? <laughs> hey, I like money and more of it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I'm, I'm amazed. But let me ask you this, because I know you're a room full of winners, okay? Are you happier when you win? I mean, really happier, or you know, it was interesting. My my son was working in a, a salon years ago in, in in Hollywood, and had all these um, celebrity type personalities coming to get their hair clipped. And uh, just being down in in Beverly Hills and Hollywood this last week, and I realized that they are people just like the rest of us; they just have a lot nicer haircuts. But uh, <laughs> but, I, what do you think was told me is that you talking about this one? Really, at that time, the biggest music group in the country, and the, one of the guys was getting his hair cut. And he said he was obsessed with holding on to their success. That he couldn't, he couldn't enjoy their success because he's thinking, we've got to write another set of songs, we've got to have another album. He could, it was always, what's next? What's next? Pastor Chuck said years ago, he said, if you strive to gain, you'll have to strive to maintain. What he meant by that is you can never really enjoy life or relax because you're always afraid of losing what you just won. That makes you deflate footballs. Study Some research done by Psychology Today magazine had some interesting comments on this. They said that they have found that happiness decreases as levels of competition increases in a given society. Why? Because a competitive culture endures by tearing people down. And you will lose most of the time because you can't win all the time. Competition destroys fellowship. It takes away from us that sense of us and makes it all about me, myself, and I. But which is kind of silly for you and I as Christians, because if you are a, a, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and by that I mean you've, you've submitted your life to His will and to the best of your ability, you're trying to follow that path that He has before you. For you, the fear of failure is highly irrational. Why? Because Romans eight thirty seven says, you are more than conquerors. Then Philippians 4, 3, says, I can do all things. I can do everything with him who gives me strength. The only question is, is what I am doing what God wants me to do? If I'm doing what God wants, I can't lose. I can't help but succeed because he is going to cause it to happen through his might. And that's why he said to Zechariah, as the people of Israel were bemoaning over how they were going to rebuild the temple after its destruction, and he said, simple, it's not by might, it's not by strength, it's going to happen through my spirit. And our problem is, we can put currency value on might, we can put currency value on strength, but how do you put currency value on God's spirit? And so we tend to discount it as not being significant, and yet God says, the spirit that you're discounting as being capable of doing this work is the same one who said, let there be light, and there was light. That's who you're talking about. We're talking about the God said, let it happen, and it happened. And the heaven and the earth were there, including you and me. God says, how in the world are we going to accomplish this? My spirit is going to accomplish it on your behalf. So really, the, the heart of my whole message to you is to talk about how do we move forward? How do you get past discouragement? It helps to understand what's going on when you're discouraged, but how do you actually practically get past discouragement? And that's where I have four simple points that I take out of this passage we read this morning. The first thing is simply to be prayerful. And as we've said before about Nehemiah, that his, for him, prayer was his first response, not his last resort. And sadly, many of us, prayer is our last resort. We've, we've done everything we can figure out what to do. We, uh, okay, let's pray. And I'm just saying that, you know, in life I've discovered that if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He'll lift you up. If you won't humble yourself, but you lift yourself up, then God will humiliate you to humble you so that He can lift you up. But at the end of the day, what God wants to do is He wants to lift you up. He wants to exalt. He wants to bless. He wants to become evident that you are His. He, want, he said, my will is that you be fruitful. If you bear much fruit, He said, I am glorified, John 15. That's God's objective, to glorify himself by your fruitfulness in your life. But he said the way you get there is not by self-promotion, self-aggrandizement. You get there by humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord and just simply saying, God, what you've asked me to do is bigger than me, greater than me. And and without your help, if your spirit doesn't move, nothing's going to happen. And that's why when you pray, you are declaring that. Simply getting down and saying, God, we need you to respond to this issue in our life, is acknowledging God's rightful position as the doer. He cries out in verse 4 as he's being ridiculed, mocked, and held in contempt. He says, hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own hands. You see, one of the freedoms is, if somebody is critical of you, don't take that on. Don't carry that burden. Because I call it the boomerang effect. (laughs) Or as I used to say to my brother when I was a kid, I am rubber, you are glue. What you say bounces off me and sticks on you. (laughs) And you see, I didn't know that I was speaking scripture at that point in my life. I didn't know what scripture was. But... There's a truth to that. You know, he says, God, let it just ricochet back upon them. Let it come back upon them. And he does. You know why he does it? So that we all can learn how horrible being held in contempt is. It humbles us. But basically, he knew that give this to God and let God sort it out. I'm not going to get into a tug-of-war with them. I'm going to let them deal with it. But he goes on, verse 9 says, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard by day and, and to meet this threat. You see, one of the things I find that prayer does is it clarifies my perspective. Because as they're being threatened and being terrified and people are saying, we need to stop, we need to give this up, we're we're in trouble, this isn't going to work out, we're not going to be able to do it, and he's getting all this negative input. What gets lost is what actually was happening. He said, we rebuilt the wall till all of it had reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. The gaps were being closed. See, discouragement blinds us to the positives. And we don't see what God's doing. And when you're going through a discouraging season and you begin to pray, the first thing you should do is start thanking God for what he's been ha- allowed to happen so far. I mean, when you read this and you step back and say, wait a minute, it was halfway done. And they basically were looking at it from the other way. You know, half full or half empty is the question. They saw the project as half empty. God was saying to Nehemiah, it's half done. You're halfway there. Why quit now? Now, where I run every day, I, I have to... It's, it's, the first part of the run is really glorious. It's all downhill. And I'm looking good. And, you know, it just goes right down until I get to the river. And then it's all uphill. And uh, I, I, I told my wife, this is the perfect, perfect run in the world. I think it's perfect. But the thing is, let me tell you how many times when I have been halfway up the hill, I've thought to myself... You know, walking isn't that bad. <laughs> Maybe I'll go visit the river for a few minutes until I can breathe again. You know, it, it, it's easy to give up when it starts getting really challenging and it gets hard. And yet there's something glorious when you press through and you get to the, to the end of the run and you stand there and saying, I'm so glad I hung in there. I was so glad because I know I've gained something. That's, many of us have gotten halfway there and we've quit because it got hard. And don't, don't let anybody could tell you you should feel bad because it's hard. It's hard, that's the way it is. It's not fun. It, it can be, things can be very discouraging. You can feel defeated, you feel like a fool. Uh, you can feel all sorts of things. But the whole thing is that if you allow yourself to get in the ba- on the backside of that and begin to lose perspective, you're in trouble. My second point is, be prayerful, but also be practical. It was Oliver Cromwell, as they were beginning, to, had to cross a river to face a battle against the, the crown loyalists in England, who said to his soldiers, he says, trust, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. In other words, he said, you know, if we're going to win, it's because God has given us victory over these people. But as we're crossing the river, make sure your powder is dry, because if you get it wet, it won't fire, and we can be assured of defeat. In other words, there are certain practical things that go in with living a life of faith and prayer. And that's why in verse nine he says to us, We prayed and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Or again in verse 13, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posted them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. In other words, God, we're trusting in you, but at the same time, we have to be prudent. It says, a prudent man, Solomon said, sees danger coming and prepares for it. So sometimes there are problems that arise in our life because we haven't been very practical. There are some who would say, well, just pray and trust God and do nothing else. I love what D.L. Moody said about his crusades. He says, I pray as if there is no God and then I plan as if there is no prayer. In other words, I don't want to be irresponsible. And we need to understand that when God calls to do things, there is a certain responsibility. Je- uh, Chuck Swindoll once said, the two things that make for a great sermon are a prepared pastor and a prepared people. That the pastor is prepared to preach the message and the people are prepared to hear it. That makes for a great sermon. So that preparation is key. Prayer is always part of preparation. But also when God speaks to you, He also will give you some very practical steps to take in which can be remedial and and reparative. The thirdly, you need to be positive. In verse 14, it says, After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. How do you not be afraid? By remembering your Lord, the Lord your God and how awesome He is. Remembering the Lord your God and how awesome He is. I think I was watching, my wife and I last night were watching an interview with uh, Chuck Swindoll and, and uh, Jody Todd Erickson, who, you know, is a quadriplegic and has <laughs> lived in that condition for uh, four decades, almost five. And um, just a stirring thing, but one of the things he asked her, Dr. Swindoll asked her, so, you know, do you, how do you deal with discouragement? How do you deal with the depression? And she said there are times, she says not only am I physically limited, I live with constant chronic pain, which I would didn't understand. And she said that's worse than the quadriplegic condition. But she said... I will not shame my God by going around and blaming him for what has happened to me. And I got so convicted. My wife and I looked at each other and said, you know, We whined each other. I said, Why are you so bad? You see that letter I just got? They were so mean. And You know, there's, there's, there's a decision to just simply say being positive. What is, a, what is a more biblical way of being positive? It's believing in the goodness of God. David said in Psalm 27, I would have thrown in the towel, I would have given up if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Now, you can't get more positive than that to be able to say, you know what, I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know how this is going to get fixed. But what I do know is that God is a fixer. And I come back to God the creator, the maintainer, the sustainer. If the very cells of my body hold together because my God is with me, then it is any problem for him who said, "Take this, tell this mountain to be plucked up and cast into the sea to fix this issue in my life or to solve this problem so as I found myself in L.A. gridlock trying to get to the airport in time to not miss my plane because I missed it on Sunday going down, um, I got this gift which amazingly God used in some pretty significant ways. But as, I, as I'm sitting there stressing, I'm trying to say to myself, God, you control time and space, L.A. traffic doesn't. And so as it took me almost two hours to go twenty-five miles, I thought to myself, you know, I I God, I just have to trust you that if I miss my flight, that's your will. And I'm really ticked off about it. <laughs> but you know, what do I know? How did I know my flight would be an hour late? God did. I could have been chilling. I could have been grooving to the L.A. tunes on the radio. Because I groove really good. <laughs> and I just sat there and said, all of that's stressing. For what? Because I'm thinking that I control the situation and I need to navigate the traffic and I need to do this and I need to do that when in fact... God says, I've held it in the palm of my hand since before you were even thought of. Before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye, I had your life in my hand. Why were you stressing? When you really believe that, I mean, and the deeper you believe that, I think we all believe it to degrees, but as God takes us through the journey and makes that more and more and a heart issue for us and gets deeper and deeper and deeper. We come to this place where we can actually have peace even though everything is falling around, around, falling down around us. You see, one revelation I had in my own own devotional time the other day was this, God just spoke to me and said, you know, you don't understand this passage. Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, I give you my peace. For in this world you'll have troublous times, but I give you peace. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, troublous times and peace, what is going on there and suddenly the God said, you know what? It's been easy for you to have my peace when everything is going exactly the way you want it. But Let things go south for a while. Do you still have peace? No, because you've defined happiness by external success. But nothing has changed between me and you since the first day you trusted me. Does that give you peace? Not if you define your life by external success, which brings me to the fourth point. You've got to be prayerful. You've got to be practical. You've got to be positive. You've got to be persistent. I love the very last passage. We all return to the wall, each to his own work. That was the very thing Satan was trying to stop. He wanted people to say, oh, let's just go home and forget about it. It's a waste of time. We're not going to get anywhere. What are we doing? That's what Satan wanted. I love what Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 3.12. This is the Amplified Translation. It says, I press on to lay hold of, to grasp and make my own that for which Christ Jesus the Messiah has laid hold of me and made me his own. I want to grasp how he has taken hold of my life, and I can rest in that. And that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, when it seems hopeless, work harder. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter the pace at which you're moving forward as long as you're moving forward and not moving backwards. Hudson Taylor wrote in his his journal uh, the night that his wife died. He said, it doesn't matter how great the pressure is that's on you. All that matters is which direction it pushes you. If it pushes you towards God, it's good. If it pushes you away from God, it's bad. It makes no difference how great the pressure is, but where does it move you? Where does it push you? Where does it squeeze you? And that becomes ultimately the final issue in the whole thing is how does this man with five small kids, uh, a, a missionary living in the heart of China, just barely struggling to survive, reviled by his own countrymen because he had adapted Chinese lifestyle in order to reach them, and any score of things often finding financial support being sketchy and undependable, criticized widely by others and as he's in this situation his wife dies and he's left there with these small children by himself and you and I would have been sitting there going what in the world and he said it doesn't matter how great that pressure is it's just a matter of where it moves me does it move me deeper into the heart of God into a deeper dependence, a deeper faith a deeper trust or does it push me away from him And that's where choice comes in. You have no choice over (laughs) the stuff that's going to press in on you. Believe me, if I had, my life would look a lot different. What I have a choice in is which way it pushes me when it happens. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that I know that as I speak out of the context of my own experience and my own understandings, that there's stuff that I've said that may or may not connect with them, but I know that every one of them goes through times of deep discouragement. I know that there are marriages right now that are just hanging on because both husband and wife feel there's no hope of this ever becoming what they had once dreamed it would be. I know there are parents here who are looking at the choices and decisions that their kids made and they thought they did all the right things and they followed the formula and that their kids are displaying behaviors and choices that leave them brokenhearted, confounded even angry and resentful I know there's some kids here who feel the same way about their parents and just wonder how somebody as bright as them could have been born to such mentally challenged parents Father I just know that The list goes on of things that can be discouragement. We're trapped in what we feel like is a dead-end job. We're trapped in a financial situation we can't fix. Lord, there's so many things. Our health is in such a compromised condition that we're just tired of even trying to get healthy. We just want to give up. Lord, I know that not only do you see all of these things, you yearn to enter into these kind of moments with us. That all we need to do is say, Lord Jesus, help me. Come alongside me. Strengthen me, Lord. That you can begin to give them not only practical guidance, but you can begin to show them the positive realities. As Elijah complained about his isolation, you said, I have still 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to, to Baal. Lord, help them to see that they are not alone and that there's a lot more good going on than the evil that they see in front of. Lord, I pray that you would help us, regardless of what our emotions tell us, to continue to throw one foot in front of another. Even if it means we're crawling on hand and knee, just pulling ourselves forward, Lord, that we would just continue to move forward by your grace. Knowing that you didn't bring us to the moment of birth and then not deliver. But God, you will magnify yourself in the Help us to trust you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name.